Sunday, so I didn't get to participate in meet and greet, and it's been a long time, so it's great to have that back. Yes. So, call to worship time. I'll be looking at 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, initially. So, as I look at the world in which we are living, I find myself thinking about those verses. 1 Peter chapter 2, 11 and 12, it says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. In this passage, it speaks of sojourners, which means someone or a group that is just passing through. Sojourners and exiles. An exile would be a foreigner, a stranger, or a refugee. We as Christians are just passing through this life. We have been bought by the blood of Jesus and made joint heirs with him for eternity. We Christians are not supposed to accept or adopt this world's customs or embrace this world's view. We are called to be an example of the values and standards of our permanent home, which is in heaven. So now I finally get to what I would like us to think about. Do we really understand what is to come? Have you really thought about your inheritance and what it means for all eternity? 1 Peter 2.9 You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This mercy God is giving to us, we desperately need and we don't deserve. This mercy we have is graciously given to us, just as the perfect sacrifice, Jesus, has been graciously supplied for us along with the title, Heir and an Inheritance. Please, Christian, live with the expectation of what your inheritance means. So let's look at Ephesians chapter 1, 17 and 18. Ephesians 1, 17 and 18. Actually, I'll go into 19. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his people, his holy people, 
and his incomparably great power for us who believe. So I'm going to leave you with three key words to think about. And they're both found in these last verses. It's enlightened, hope, and riches. Look back at this passage, at these words, and live your life with the expectation of what your inheritance means. So let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your mercy and grace, Lord. The mercy that we don't deserve. The mercy that you have taken upon yourself to extend to us. The mercy you've shown us through your Son, our Savior. And that we might be seen as heirs that are to receive an inheritance that we cannot even comprehend what it truly means. Lord, I just pray that you will help us lead lives that are pleasing to you, Lord, and that are worthy of the inheritance and the title of heir. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. With you, please turn with me to Second Peter and Genesis 19. Gotcha. So, Second Peter... And then we'll go to Genesis 19. So we're going to be in 2 Peter chapter 2, <clears throat> verse, beginning at verse 6. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials, and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Father in heaven, Lord, I pray that as we direct our attention to your holy word this morning, Lord, no doubt a difficult text, a text that will cause us to ponder and think, and at the same time, Lord, I pray, would cause us to look so forward to the new heavens and new earth and your perfect righteousness. Father, the sin of man, the darkness of the heart of man, is astounding. And as we see a picture of that in this this brief sketch of what happened with Lot in Sodom, Lord God, I pray that, Lord, we would beware that we are all in great need of a foreign righteousness, righteousness that is not our own, but, dear God, righteousness that is that from Christ. 
Please, Lord God, bless our time. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you would turn with me to Genesis chapter 19. Genesis chapter 19. Um, Let me say this right off the bat before we get there. The language, uh, this is a, a story that is a difficult story to read, a difficult story to preach um, in the sense of some of the graphic nature of it. I am going to do my best to be somewhat subtle, not with the purpose of trying to soft-pedal the word, but just recognition of age groups um, in the room. Uh, nonetheless, I want to be faithful to the text and deal with what we have before us. Wouldn't you find it strange if I preach Genesis 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, all the way to 18, and then 25, all the way to 50? The elders and I would have a wonderful visit this week. <laughs> so I'll be in chapter 19 with the beginning of the sin and destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And let me just say really quick... I do not plan on doing part two on Mother's Day next Sunday. Um, But we will be back in Genesis 19. Um, So Genesis chapter 19, I want to read the context, just a few verses from chapter 18 to remind us all of of where we've been prior to. Verse 31 of chapter 18 says, He said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again, but this once, suppose 10 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening. And Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. Last week, um, we spent time on the passage prior to the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, specifically on on the topic of the heart of Abraham and Abraham's intercession on behalf of the righteous in Sodom. My heart, and I'm sharing with you a a little testimony, my heart was deeply, profoundly moved by that passage because not that I didn't know it was there, but I guess I was freshly reminded and taken back to the fact God's people should not rejoice in the wrath of God on the creation of God. The Lord does not delight in the death of the wicked, and I don't think we should either. Now, you must balance that with, I love true justice. That word gets used so much today, it doesn't mean a whole lot in a lot of spaces. But in reality, I love biblical, God-given justice. That attribute of God, that he's a just God, is a beautiful thing. It's a wonderful thing, and I rejoice in that. I'm convinced in eternity we will rejoice in the justice that has been done by the living God. The tough part is, I'm not very good at figuring out what's just. I'm a fallen sinner who's redeemed. And when I say, this is just, a lot of time it's not. It's Dan's perspective, not God's perspective. And so let us be careful, beware. You are not the judge, you are not the jury, and you are not the executioner. That is all given to another. And so Abraham comes and pleads with God for mercy for Sodom and Gomorrah. Now here's part two. 
At some point in your life, and I'm sure you've hit this a few different times in your life, you must come to a place where you submit to God's answer to your prayer. You must come to a point where you say, Father, your will, and you mean this, not just repetitive, your will be done. And I want that. Um, Lord, I want your will to be that which is done, and I want to be in your will. I want to submit to your will. Because the Lord just begged God, bartering, it feels like at times, where he's saying, how about 50? How about 45? How about 40? How about 30? How about... And moving all the way down, how about 10? The Lord says, if there's 10, I won't destroy it. And then we come to chapter 19. You know what he's going to do? He's going to absolutely wipe it out. Hell from heaven, I've heard some people say, as fire rains down and destroys everybody. Absolutely, perfectly just wrath. So Abraham, you must submit to the will of God. Because this is the will of the living God. But first, if you remember, the Lord and the two angels, as they came and met with Abraham, they specifically said, we're going down. Remember, God's omnipresent and, and all of that is there. But for Abraham's sake, to show him this is a complete just act on my part, for Abraham's Sake, God says, we're going to go down and we're going to see and, and investigate the outcry that's come to me from, from Sodom. And so it's fascinating to me. The two angels leave. God stays with Abraham. They go into this discussion. And then the Lord is removed and these two angels go into Sodom. That's where we're at now in the, in the layout of Genesis. <clears throat> and as they come into Sodom, they're met at the front gate by Lot. One of the strange, not strangest, but just a peculiar man in the Bible with lots of, I have a lot of question marks about this man. Verse 1, the two angels came to Sodom in the evening and Lot was sitting at the gate of Sodom. Now, remember months ago how Abraham and Lot's herdsmen were debating Abraham said, okay, we need to separate. So Lot, you choose where you want to go, and I'll take what's left. Remember, we talked about that concept of generosity. We talked about that concept of Abraham was trusting God's will and told Lot, you take what you think is best. And Lot said, it looks the best over there. It's beautiful. There's running water. I'm I'm out. I want all of that. Abraham's response, okay, you get what looks good to the flesh, and I get God. Now, he didn't say that, I know, but that's... That's what's happening there. We're told that he goes and he camps outside of Sodom. Then we're told he lives in Sodom, remember, because Abraham goes and rescues Lot, because they're taken captive, and the king of Sodom and the king of Salem, they come back, they offer the money to Abraham. Abraham says, no, I don't want anybody to say, I got rich by you, king of Sodom. I want the Lord to be my Lord. And Lot goes back and lives in Sodom, and now... We're told that he is at the front gate of the city. It's one of those things that there is not much ink in the text that tells us much of anything about being at the front gate of the city. Um, Some commentators, and I am of this persuasion, say this probably points that there's somewhat of a high status of him in the city. Uh, As he greets them, as he's there in the evening at that front gate, there's some sort of, uh, I like the term, bigwigness 
<clears throat> as he is there and they're putting him in that status. Also, I'll make this argument later, but I would also say the fact that he has two virgin daughters, the fact that he hasn't been abused and hurt shows something in reference to this man's status in this town. Also, please, as my wife pointed out to me uh, last night, remember that he's a relative of the one who rescued them. So there's, there's numerous factors you can factor into that that go, okay, Lot probably has some kind of higher standing in the city as he's there at the front gate and these two angels in human form are coming into the city. Now, what we see thus far, guys, in verses 1 to 3 is basically the same thing we saw with Abraham when they came to him, except more in an urban setting than a rural setting. Remember with Abraham, they're sitting there at the tent, Uh, He's sitting there at the tent, they appear, and then he shows his hospitality to them. Here, Lot is in the city gate, the two angels are coming to the city, and he's going to show hospitality to them. Look at your Bible. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, remember, sirs, or lord, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. Lot was sitting at the city gate, and he calls them to himself quickly. Now, I don't want to read into the text, but there appears to be a flavor of immediacy in him here. As he meets with them really quick, face hits the ground. First response is, my lords, get out of town and come to my house. And what I'll do is I will make food for you, I'll wash your feet, and I will give you a place to stay for the night, and then you'll leave. Um, I don't know about you, typically when people visit my home, when we invite people to our home, I don't let them know what time they'll be leaving. Now, some visitors have come, and I've let... No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) But it's fascinating to me that there seems to be some immediacy here with Lot where he's saying... Come, I'll show you hospitality, you'll stay in my house, and in the morning you'll leave. That's what's going to happen. You could debate over the motivation in the man's heart here. I, I, perhaps, I am convinced it's mixed. Number one, culturally, this is what you do at this time. You would, you would bring somebody in. You would wash their feet. When he bows down before them, when he brings them in, we're going to be told that, that he makes a feast for them with unleavened bread. First time you'll, one of the first times you'll see unleavened bread in the Old Testament. And then as he gives that unleavened bread, unleavened because it wouldn't take much time to produce and have ready to feed them, God says, or, or Lot says rather, come to my place and let me show you the red carpet treatment, and show you hospitality. That's part of it. I really struggle thinking that this is the first occurrence where a stranger came into town and got mistreated. My thought also is that Lot here is protecting them, knowing the treatment of strangers that sojourn in this town. And so, for their behalf, he takes them in his care. One must wonder if part of Lot's motive was to protect these two visitors from what could happen to them in the town. It would be very hard to believe that this event is the very first of its kind in this town. I really find that hard to believe, especially when we hear about 
what's taking place in this town and the lack of shame in what's taking place in this town. So he takes them to their, to their home. If you notice in the text, it's fascinating to me, their first response is no. I think that that's pretty clear because they're there on a mission from the Lord. The Lord has sent them there. Go and investigate. Go and, and look at the outcry. Look at, the, look at what's taking place in Sodom. If you look at your Bible, verse 2, and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house, and he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. The words here are, uh, ESV is not weak, but it's just not as strong as the actual language of how much he pressed to get them to give in. He's very strongly saying, no, 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 you come to my house. I'm not asking, you know, I'm, I'm volunteering you come to my house, wash your feet, have a feast, stay here for the night, and then be on your way tomorrow. He pressed them, you do this, please, please, come on, come on, my lords, don't, don't do it. You can picture this man's actions here, which are all good. Um, I, I don't want to give, I want to be careful not to give too much of a negative connotation to him in this message. Um, I will certainly be doing that at some point in some ways. But here I believe this is true hospitality and perhaps fear for their welfare in this place. If anybody knows what this place is like, he does. That's why I had you read 2 Peter with me that says righteous lost lot. It, it, another translation says it vexed his soul to be there in the midst of the sin and the perversion in this city. Lot was uncomfortable, putting it way lightly. Lot did not take part in the sin. Lot was against the sin. Lot was not involved in that happening. He was bothered by it. That's not my words. That is the Apostle Peter, the inspired New Testament author, saying, righteous Lot who was vexed by the sin of this place. Which again, I think, still points to that fact that this guy has some kind of a status in the city because he's still alive, he's still unharmed. So they go with him to his home, and he prepares a feast, unleavened bread, and they ate. His plan worked beautifully. Except verse 4. But before they laid down, the men of the city, now pay careful attention to the words, to the words. The men of the city, both young and old, All the people to the last man surrounded the house. The the desire was to go to Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember all that time Abraham just spent with God, if there's 50, 45, 40, moving all the way down. The the Bible, beloved, you you can catch this. The more you study the word, the more you read the word, the more you catch these kind of small things where you go, the author is really trying to communicate something here. All the men young and old, everybody of the city. What are you getting at? The whole city. They're all there. This is, this is not that there were two or three rebel rousers in Sodom that were making a mess for the rest of us. That's, that's not 
That is not what's being communicated here. Moses, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, the author is, trying to, is seeking to communicate to us the fact that this whole city is in, in a mess. Young and old. They're confronted by these, this wicked mob. I've termed it. All the men from the city, the men had come with evil intentions. I want you to think about the gravity of what we're looking at here. Because our familiarity with the term Sodom and Gomorrah, as I opened the sermon last Sunday, is interesting because if I say Sodom and Gomorrah, we all go, oh yeah. We, we know that. We, we, we even use that sometimes. You know, like sometimes someone will make reference to a, a part of, of our country and they say, oh, I got to go down to Sodom. And people are like, oh, I get what. We know what you're saying, what you're communicating. And so here in this passage, we can very quickly kind of let it pass through without being affected of what's taking place here. I want you to think carefully about this with me. Here's a few points. Every single man, young and old, no shame in what they're doing publicly as a group. No shame in the act that they will be seeking to do here. They all came collectively in agreement on this. And there is absolutely no thought to the well-being of Lot, to his family, or to these two travelers. They have nothing to do with it except for everything to do with it. But we don't care less about what they think. What happens in a city when that is the nature of every male in the city with absolutely no shame to publicly go and do that together? You feel the, the, the pressing, the gravity of what we're talking about in Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, last week, that, that phrase, when the Lord says, an outcry is come unto me, that word usually, it, it, it points to that fact of a grave, deep, horrific sin taking place coming before the living God. Truly, This was a terrifying scene. As you are Lot, put yourself in his sandals, you're there, the two angels have eaten, so far it's been a quiet night, everything's everything's calm, maybe I snuck him in without people knowing, maybe word's not going to get around, and maybe, you know, it'll be okay, it'll be okay, Just, just keep him happy, keep him quiet, sneak him in and get him out, town is fine, they're fine, and I kept the peace, everything's going to be okay until it's not okay. If you look down at your Bibles, verse 5, and they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. This Hebrew word know sometimes denotes of sexual intercourse. As Abraham knew his wife Eve and she conceived. You see that periodically through the Old Testament. The men of this town surrounded the home with a desire to abuse these two angels. They came with absolutely no discretion and absolutely no fear of God. The culture of Sodom had deemed this a justified act. 
I don't want to move too quick on that, beloved. The culture of Sodom justified this among themselves as okay. Is it okay if the majority says it's okay? Of course not. But man, would they ever sell it that way. And let me just go a little step further. Man, do they sell it that way. That as the majority says it's okay, what is your problem doesn't change a thing about right and wrong. The world can give its hearty approval with joy and still be an absolute sinful mess deserving the wrath of the living God. Even with plastic smiles all day long, it's still sin. And that's, if there was ever a message for the church in America, my goodness, do we need to hear that. The smile of the world means nothing. The smile of God means everything. And as the world looks at you and says, either you bow or you are crushed, beloved, this is not a, this is not a question. The answer is, how bad's it going to hurt? Lot made it his responsibility to protect these guys. And this is why Lot is such a fascinating character to me, because I see courage, I see selfishness, I see cowardice. You know what I see in Lot? Me and you. This is a man who is mixed. This is a man who takes them under his care doing the best he can with a very strange place. But this is also a man who told Abraham, I want the best and you can have the, what's left. This is also a man who lived outside of Sodom, then in Sodom, now at the gate of Sodom. This is a man whose heart is vexed by the sin, but he still lives there. I think this guy is extremely applicable to us in so many levels where you take just a little bit, just take a little bit, a little bit of sin, a little bit of, and just, just drip by drip, you start to embrace and say, it's not that bad. I wonder at times, did Lot ever say, yeah, it's weird living here, but it's not that bad. I don't know. I don't know, and the text does not say, so let, let me be careful in that. So there they are. They're in the house. They're fed, they're going to sleep. A massive mob comes to the house, and they say very simply, where are the men that came to your house tonight? Send them out that we may know them. Some translations say we may know them carnally to give the, a further explanation of what's happening in the text. I don't think that's known or, or rather needed for the text to be properly communicated. I think it's very clear what's happening here. Let me just say as a sidebar, I find it very fascinating. If you're interested in doing this, if you're a glutton for punishment, Google the sin of Sodom, and you will hear some incredible, poor explanation of the Bible. Because a good portion of people who are seeking to interpret this passage interpret it as the sin of being inhospitable on behalf of the people in town. If that is their definition of inhospitable... (laughs) 
But let me say this, beloved. Either you do one of two things. Either you recognize homosexuality as sin, or you make a mockery of the text of Scripture. There's your choice. And so you chop it up and make it say what it does not say. And I know there's lots of argumentations and lots of things that come at us from all kinds of brilliant people. And I'm saying just intellectually smart folk who come to us with all their arguments to show the Bible does not say what it says. But here's the tough part. It keeps saying what it says. Now, let me balance that really quick. And I am on a sidebar here. Bear with me for just a second. The tough part is when the Christian makes a particular sin the sin and misses the fact that perfect righteousness of Jesus is what is of necessity to be born again. So you come to the world. The world says, is homosexuality a sin? And I say, yes, I believe that's a sin against God. I believe, I, I believe that. And the response is, so before the living God, we are sinners. Yes, I believe that that is the case just as I do disobedience to parents, is a sin before the living God. Lust in my heart, whether it's homosexual lust, heterosexual lust, that lust is lust and sin before the living God. Greed. When was the last time you got mad because the driver in front of you is going way slow? Welcome, Sodom. Let us be careful, beloved, that we are so quick to cry for justice against a sin that's not our sin and try to push away our sin. Because Christ died for my sins, all of them, but there may not be that particular sin that I put out there because it's so easy to flatter myself that I'm not bad like those guys. You are standing on mercy. So be careful crying for justice when you are standing on the platform of mercy. God's the judge. He will cover that. I'm not saying soft pedal it. I'm not saying lie. I'm not saying drop your guard. I'm just saying be careful thinking you are on your Christian high horse and you think you can look down on the world. You deserve hell like the Sodomites and you don't get it because of Christ. And so the world doesn't need to get more good works to be better. Then they're just better pagans who go to hell. Rather, you need perfection, which is Christ. So let us be careful, beloved, because I never, I never want to be guilty of putting some sin above the rest of the sins. And I say, once you figure out that sin, then you'll be saved. No, that's not true. If you break one point of the law, you break the whole law. Not only that, but you're born dead in Adam. So so let us us beware and be careful when the world comes at us and we see a sin that's not our own and it's so easy to justify our own self-righteousness and condemn their sin. 
but I am utterly convinced the sin here is a homosexual act that they're seeking to do, and I believe that that is sin from Leviticus. I believe that's sin from Romans chapter 1. I believe that's sin from Jesus' teaching on marriage, and I believe that's sin by the very creation of God, male and female. Okay, let's come back, back to the text. Lot went out to the men at the entrance and shut the door after him. Now, this is, there's some courage here. We all, I mean, absolutely, there is courage here. He has a desire, he has a desire here to protect and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Now, he just told the mob they're wicked. Be very careful when you do that. Behold, now here again, I, the dad in me just comes unglued. Behold, I have two daughters who've not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men for they have come under the shelter of my roof. Now, I know that in the passage, in the culture, no doubt there's a There is a heavy burden on the man who's brought him under his roof to protect, to guard, to take care of these these two angels that are in his presence. They are holy, and he has a desire to protect them. But for the life of me, I can't figure out this act. And what I mean by that is to justify it somehow, that this is a good act on on his behalf. I, maybe there is, maybe there's something culturally somebody could give, but in my mind and heart, I have no clue how on earth this could be an act that is a, a good act, a righteous act. To offer his daughters to this, this group. And what's even stranger, very strange about the passage, is they deny the offer. They refuse the two daughters. But they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn. So they're talking amongst themselves. This fellow came to sojourn, and he has become the judge. Do you hear the self-justifying nature of what's being said right there? So let me get this straight. You come into our town, and you start telling us where to put the furniture in our town? You are the moral police lot. You came to our town. You came here as a foreigner, and now you're our judge? <clears throat> There's a, definitely a, a connection here that we can't miss where when we speak out against something as wicked as he did here, game over. Brothers, don't act so wickedly. Who do you think you are to be our judge. Now, I don't want to jump on a hobby horse, but isn't it interesting that there's one verse that this world knows so well? I heard one Bible teacher say one time, he thought there was a secret underground Bible camp for unsaved people, and they teach one verse. Judge not lest you be judged, which, by the way, is completely ripped out of its context when it's used. But isn't it interesting that the very first response is, who are you to judge my sin? Who are you to say it's a sin? Who are you to say it's wicked? Who are you to say this? And so, I, 
I cringe a bit, guys, at what happens next because I'm seeing a pattern in my Bible, but also a pattern in history where when, when the, the mob, and I'm just using that as kind of a catch-all phrase, the, the mob, when they come and demand and they are told no, how quick violence is the next step? Remember Stephen in Acts chapter 7 where Stephen is discussing with them at that time and Stephen from the Old Testament is pointing and leading them to Christ so that they, they, could, not, they could not fight back. They couldn't debate with the argument Stephen was making. And as soon as Stephen lands and says, you were, he was crucified by you, your wicked hands, you crucified him. It says they, they grit their teeth and they charged him and then they murdered him. How fast debate went to murder. And here's the interesting part is that all I have to say is because, you know, we, <laughs> we pat ourselves on the back so quick and we say, well, how uncivilized for a mob to go and wreck stuff. Kidding me? Look at our world right now. And that, by the way, that's not a political statement in any way, stretch, or form. That's a sinful, lost human statement. But no, we we are not this great, glorious, civilized people. And it's a lie, a deep lie, when people try to say, this is an archaic time when people were all bad, but now we're so sophisticated in our own day. Nonsense. Nonsense. Man has fallen in Adam. Man is still a sinner. We We can put a ton of frosting on the dirt clod all day long. Still a dirt cloth. We are still fallen creatures in need of Christ. The crowd turned on Lot immediately. Should not be surprised by this. This is what happens. As soon as Lot goes against them, they turn on him, and they are about to go after him. If you look down at the passage, it says, But they said, Stand back. And they said, This fellow came, uh, came to sojourn, and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. It's interesting, isn't it, that Lot brought these two men to his home to protect them, and Lot closes the door behind him to go deal with them, to protect them. And now who needs the protection? Let me remind you, Lot, these are two angelic beings sent from the living God who can destroy Sodom, will, in just a bit, And so who needs the rescuing? Lot needs the rescuing. That's why they're there. And so what happens? Well, as they're pursuing to hurt Lot, the angels take them, take him back into the home, and they put a... It's not just blindness with just that they couldn't see, but there's a stupor in the the mob, in this group of people, to the point that they are consistently trying to get that door open. I don't know exactly what the hinges and the doorknob and all that kind of stuff looked like on a door at that time. I doubt that it was as simple as what we would see in our own day to get a door open. But nonetheless, it was so much that they wore themselves out trying to open the door. Now, guys, if there was ever a definition of the word pathetic... It is a group of people so passionately filled with perverted lust and violence 
that they exhausted themselves to get the door open. <clears throat> what a pitiful picture of fallen humanity. And let me just share with you, as I've shared week in, week out, anytime we see a picture of fallen humanity that makes us sick, we are actually getting a glimpse of ourselves prior to Christ. I think it's a massive mistake when we read a passage like this and we separate ourselves from Sodom that they're the bad sinners and we're the okay sinners. They're the ones who are so terrible and so deserving of his wrath, but I'm not that bad of a guy. The Bible says otherwise, and that line of distinction between worthy of God's wrath and not becomes clearer and clearer the more we study his word, the more we understand who God is. I will pick this up in uh, two weeks, but I want to draw a couple things to your attention to consider with me, if you would. The acceptance of the majority means nothing to how we act and live our lives. The acceptance of the majority means nothing as far as how we live our lives as disciples of Jesus Christ. Let every man be a liar. But God's word to be held is true and right. This world is, is, is on a path, and I will say specifically, this country is on a path. It's like a steamroller for every conservative believer in Jesus Christ. And all they want, beloved, all they want is for you to deny Christ and deny the truthfulness of his word. That's it. So easy. And you will pay dearly if you hold tightly to what you believe to be true from the word. You will pay dearly in your families. I have. With some extended family, there have been some things that are Really, really difficult. That would be so easy if I was not Christ's disciple. A piece of cake. But as soon as you come to Christ, as R.C. Sproul said years ago, I had no problems until I became a believer. The acceptance of the majority means nothing as far as what's right or what's wrong. That which is truly right is declared by the word of the living God. Please remember, please remember this. And there's a little bit of sarcasm mixed in here just because it's Dan's sense of humor, but think about this with me. Why would we think more fallen, sinful people in agreeance would make it more right? Are you kidding me? Yeah, but there's a there's hundred million dead, sinful, lost people who think you're wrong. I know, you're making my point. The majority saying something is right or wrong means nothing in reference to what is right or wrong. 
Beloved, we live in a very perverted and becoming more perverted culture. And God in his grace saved Dan out of it. You're the ecclesia. You're the, you're the church. You are the called out ones. God called you out of it. He, he, he brought you out of it. There's a, that pit of Sodom and Gomorrah. And God brought you out of it and made you his own, declared you his child, clothed you in the righteousness of Christ, filled you with the spirit of God, gave you the word of God, gave you the body of Christ, and gave you himself over and over daily. That should break the heart of the Christian to see the lost who are in the place we were in. To the point it would get us on our knees as intercessors pleading with God, have mercy, have mercy on them. We have a task given to us from the living God to take the saving gospel message to this world. That is your task. That is my task. And so, beloved, I, I close on this phrase. I heard this from one of my favorite pastors maybe 15 years ago, 10, 15 years ago. And this term has stuck with me and meant a lot to me. And so I want to share it with you this morning and plead with you to consider it. My prayer is that you would become a stubborn biblicist. And I don't mean that in a negative term. I don't mean that in the, the mean, rude Christian who throws rocks and is rude to people. I don't, that's not what I mean. But what I mean is that you are stubborn on the truth. I'm a stubborn biblicist. I was, by God's grace, I was raised by one of the most stubborn biblicists I've ever met in my life. To be unflinching on truth, and then take that and wrap that in the velvet of a loving heart that's passionate for the lost. There you are. There you are, Christian. That's, what, that's, that's my prayer for me, for my wife, for my kids, for PCBC. You be unflinching in your stubborn biblicism. And you actually have tears for those who you know don't know Christ. And then plead with God to use you as an instrument of mercy in this fallen world. I don't know exactly what all that looks like, how that works within your family dynamic, within your friendships, at your place of work. God knows all of that. But I think we are a one-winged airplane if we do not have those two pieces to our character. Stubborn biblicism and a loving, passionate heart for the lost. Our Father, Lord God, I ask that you would do the, the, the work of shaping us more and more into your image. Jesus, as you wept over Israel, but Father, Lord, you, you did not budge, thus saith 
the Lord. I so much want that balance, Father. The, the temperature is rising in our country, in our county, in our world. We are, we are getting so close daily to having to give more and more accounts for the hope of the faith that is within us, Lord God. So, Father, please, I I ask of you, please, Lord God, help me to be a stubborn biblicist with a broken heart for my neighbors. And, Lord, that I might be an instrument in your hand somehow. For your name's sake, Lord God, for your glory's sake, I ask of you that PCBC would be a a powerful, clean, loving, stubborn, beautiful instrument in your hand in Tillamook County. Oh, Father, help us to be so close to you and so close to your word. Father, that when things come across our desk and across our minds, it goes through the filter of the written word of God. And Lord, may the chips land where they land, for we trust in your sovereign good pleasure. We trust that you are sovereign over all things, working all things after the counsel of your own will, and working all things together for good for us, Lord, who love you and are called according to you. So dear God, we are well armed to set foot into this lost world. So I plead with you, Father, to help us as you preserve us, help us to persevere. In Jesus' precious, precious name, amen.